0: once again we welcome you to moving forward with young voices and we are happy to welcome to the show joseph bouchard uh joseph this is your first time on on the show first of all uh, welcome you're a young voices contributor but i assume there are probably a few other hats that you wear take just a moment to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do
1: thanks brian so yes i'm a contributor with uh, young voices but i've been a Freelance journalist here in Latin America for the last year or so. I've also worked at a variety of think tanks, uh, and I've focused most of my work on Latin American geopolitics and security issues, mostly as it relates to U.S.-China competition.
0: Okay, and I, I have to say I'm looking at an article you wrote for Nationalinterest.org about uh, Luisa Gonzalez and how she would be a disaster for U.S. Ecuador relations. And I don't mean to sound uh, petty, but I'm happy to hear that uh, somebody else besides America is is having some intrigue in their presidential politics. Set the stage for us. Tell us a little bit about what has been going on in Ecuador and and what has brought her to the forefront.
1: Sure. So what happened is uh, this guy, Guillermo Lasso, from the center-right coalition of parties, has sort of had his government uh, gone through some problems. Uh, He's uh, had to face impeachment proceedings in the Congress, uh, very low approval rating, and that forced him to resign. And... uh, Sort of uh, begin new a new election cycle in Ecuador, where um, it will only be for two years until the next election. But it's it's quite a contentious race uh, between all of the left wing parties, mostly, as well as one center right part uh, party candidate that's about at fifteen percent now. And Luisa Gonzalez has really uh, hit the ground running. She's at forty one percent of the vote in recent polls, uh, indicating that she'll probably win. Um, there's a lot of candidates running, but she's by far the most uh, – the one with the most name recognition, and she's from the Citizen Revolution, which is a, a socialist party associated with the former president, Rafael Correa, who was also a, a socialist uh, president for 10 years.
0: So what what is the attitude of uh, uh, Correa as well as uh, Lasso and, and uh, Rodriguez? Is she – I, or Gonzalez, rather, is she um, are they are they all f- on friendly terms with America or, or do they have kind of a troubled uh, history with with the U.S. And, and their relations?
1: Well, the Correa movement is quite anti-American. Uh, it ran on anti-American sentiment back in 2006 and 2007. And the movement has is, is not stopped since then. They've made opposing neoliberal policies uh, a very central point of their of their campaign. Uh, opposing the IMF and the World Bank policies, um, being on on uh, sort of less friendly ties with the United States. The United States has been the Ecuador's largest trade and security partner for the last few decades, uh, ever since the Cold War, basically. But uh, Lasso wanted to uh, keep that going uh, and, and sort of had closer ties with the IMF, the World Bank, the United States, had a closer relationship with the U.S. security community, uh, accepted U.S. security assistance to fight uh, the cartels and uh, some guerrilla groups. But uh, Gonzalez and Correa and all their movement is is very much an anti-American one, and her winning would very much change the dynamic of the relationship, again, in favor of the more anti-American stance.
0: So it seems like it's we're pretty clear on where, where these particular politicians stand. What does the average person on the streets in, in Ecuador think? Is, is, are their leadership in touch with them, or do they operate in their own sphere?
1: Well, sadly, the Koreista movement is very strong still in Ecuador, even though Korea as, as president was very much uh, authoritarian, especially in his last term. He changed the constitution to allow himself to run a third time and wanted to run a fourth time until he was stopped by the Congress and by the opposition. Uh, despite this, you know, he, he implemented a lot of different social and economic policies to the left, um, created a lot of public universities, uh, instituted a very robust uh, public health care system. And those sorts of policies really resonated with the Ecuadorian people. And they're, it seems like they're willing to tolerate uh, the authoritarian tendencies, if, they mean, if that means they can have a, a, another term of or one of his uh, enchmen or enchwoman in this case. Um, and when I went to Ecuador and talked to regular people, and I attended some protests and, and, and spoke to people on the ground, it sounded like most people wanted Correa to come back and that movement to really uh, be revived.
0: Now, tell me about Pink Tide. I'm sorry, I I have just not been following, um, you know, Latin American uh, politics as closely. China, Russia, Ukraine, all this stuff has been kind of hogging the spotlight. But um, I had not heard of Pink Tide before reading your article. What's what's the background on this group?
1: Sure. So, the Pink Tide is basically an informal coalition or movement of left-wing populist governments. That started in the early 2000s with people like Correa, with people like Lula in Brazil, who's back now, and people like Evo Morales in Bolivia, and even Chavez in Venezuela. So it's a very wide-ranging movement, but it's it's mostly left-wing populism. And uh, after that, uh, in the early to mid-2010s, there was a conservative wave, and now I would say we're back in a pink tide 2.0, where left-wing governments... Are winning elections again in, in Latin America and really building a coalition to uh, push for social democratic or even authoritarian leftist policies and as well as uh, anti American policies in some cases.
0: So I have to ask this. Um- are there, are there positives and negatives to uh, U.S. economic power being exercised in that region? Um, I mean, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of, you know, I'm, I bet there are probably some people who really don't want the U.S. Uh, interfering, and there are probably others saying, no, we would actually welcome their help. Uh, what are some of the upsides? What are some of the downsides of the U.S. exerting influence within that region?
1: Sure. Well, there, there's a very contentious past, and, and people are quite mad at what's happened in the last decades since the Cold War with The US supporting various dictatorships, coups, uh, interfering in in elections. And I would say that's a thing of the past in a lot of cases. And I understand the anger, but I would say that the US uh, no longer does that in an overt fashion as it did before. And in terms of economic power, I would say countries can very deeply benefit from the US being their largest trade partner, from engaging with the IMF. So in Ecuador's case, Uh, It was very controversial because when Correa was in power, he actually declined to negotiate with the IMF to uh, refinance Ecuador's debt in favor of a Chinese offer, which was of higher interest and uh, had no possibility of Ecuador negotiating the deal and actually gave China the the power to renegotiate the terms whenever it wanted for whatever reason. So I would say I understand the anger, but in this case – it has actually prevented Ecuador from having a better uh, financial deal.
0: Talk to me about uh, some of the fallout from from Ecuador. I believe that was that was the embassy where Julian Assange uh, sought asylum for some time there in in Britain. Um, ha- has that soured U.S. and Ecuadorian relations as well?
1: Sure, I think it revived the fear in a lot of Ecuadorians that the U.S. is still meddling in in its affairs and interfering in its politics. And obviously, there's security interests involved. And when U.S. has security interests at play, it it will do its best to to promote its interests. But I I would say that U.S. security assistance has really been beneficial to Ecuador, especially fighting cartels and illegal mining and, and fishing. And I would say, you know, you can sort of make sure that the U.S. doesn't interfere while also promoting your own security interests by, by welcoming U.S. financial and security assistance.
0: So, for those of us who haven't been keeping an eye on, on what is happening you know, in Latin America, talk to me about uh, what are the nations we should be watching more closely, um, whether, whether they are operating with America's interest in mind or whether they are actually more antagonistic. Who are the big players that we need to be aware of?
1: Well, right now, there's a second round elections in Guatemala, and it looks like it'll go back to being very unstable politics from now on, even though the country's security situation was stabilizing to the point of a lot of my American and Canadian friends going to Guatemala to visit. But it seems like that's going to turn. Uh, Ecuador, obviously, for for what I mentioned before, I would say also Chile, where the left-wing government uh, hasn't been able to amend the dictatorial uh, dictator era constitution. And it seems like the far right will, will win the next election. Uh, Argentina is happening in September as well. That's to follow where Miele from a libertarian right perspective um, is looking pretty good to win the election. So I would say there's a lot of different political races to look for and to see what how that impacts the relationship in the United States.
0: Well, Joseph, I appreciate you providing some perspective. Uh, like I say, you know, Russia, China, Ukraine have, have, and Europe, they've, they've really dominated the news cycle now for some time. So we sometimes forget there, there's there's a big old world out there. And, and in fact, a lot of it a lot closer to us that, that has great bearing on what uh, what happens in terms of our own foreign interest uh, for people who want to follow you, for people who'd like to either follow you on social media or follow your writing. What do you recommend they do to, to catch up with you?
1: I would say follow me on Twitter at Joe Uh, write me a message, feel free to engage with my content, and thank you for reading my articles.
0: All right, again, we're talking with uh, Joseph Bouchard, uh, Young Voices contributor, and uh, the guy who's keeping us informed about uh, what's happening in the rest of the world. Thanks again. Thank you so much. welcome back to moving forward with young voices you're going to be hearing some new voices on today's show that's exciting today we are welcoming akila jayaram did i get that even close (laughs) akila welcome to the program i'm I'm so happy to meet you Uh, for people who are, are hearing your voice for the very first time would you take just a moment please tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do
2: Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So my name is Akila. I'm a PhD candidate in biophysics. And I also do a bit of politics on the side. So I'm a campaigner with conservative young women. um, And I'm just here to talk about my op ed. Which you might have
0: read. I'm looking at your op-ed. It's titled, Yes, We Should Be Building More Tall Buildings in London. And, uh, you know, I, I live in a place which is actually very rural, but there's a lot of opposition to people building buildings that are too tall. I would have thought that in, in London, which is such a large metropolitan area, that maybe that wouldn't be a thing. But apparently there's, there's a lot of opposition. What's the story behind that?
2: So I think, Brian, I think in in the UK, we are stuck in a loop of not building. I mean, there's always opposition, no matter whether it's urban or rural, uh, residents are concerned about... You know how the infrastructure is going to impact on their um, their living, basically. So it, it, a lot of this opposition comes from current residents rather than future residents or uh, you know other people who are doing business in the area. I think it's primarily because they they see uh, that building would cause an influx of people, and they think all buildings are ugly and would not fit in with the tradition and the character. So I think compared to the U.S., the U.K. still uh, holds on a still uh, holds on a bit to tradition a bit more than probably other countries. Um, so I think that's probably the context of why there's been that much opposition.
0: Well, on the one hand, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I can understand that. But but as you point out in your article, there's a very real need for uh, office space and for uh, for laboratory space and, and even for, for places for people to live that, uh, that necessitates there there need to be there need to be more buildings created what what specifically are the reasons why um the height of buildings becomes an issue do do people worry that it will block their view
2: so i think that's one of the reasons definitely i think the the article that was sort of written prior to mine said that having tall buildings would block views of St. Paul's Cathedral. So I think people are concerned about that. But my argument is that we already have tall buildings in Liverpool Street. I I was there uh, a month ago. We have soaring tower office blocks, so I don't see how building more um, tall buildings would not fit in character of the area as well. So it's it's a bit uh, sort of confusing to me if if I may say (laughs)
0: So, who gets to call the shots when it comes to making those kinds of decisions that are based uh, perhaps more on aesthetics than than on utilitarian concerns? Um, I, I'm just curious who who is the the final authority in making those kinds of decisions?
2: So, I think the way planning policy works in the UK is that uh, local people have a say, which I think is important. Uh, but generally this stops development. so that it's it's a, uh, you know, a, a fine balance between democracy and development, I feel, uh, because, like I said, the residents of the area don't want to see uh, it grow exponentially, but in some areas we do need that growth. Um, so I think, you know, my article is also a call to planning reform in the future in the UK. So trying to maybe centralise things, trying to get these uh, building projects moving forward through um, some sort of mechanism that currently doesn't exist.
0: We're, we're in places where the population density is quite high. Mm-hmm. certainly it makes sense you know to build up more so than, than out in order to preserve green spaces and, 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 and just more open space generally. Um, does this also affect, uh, for instance, you, you mentioned that uh, if you want people to move here, if you want to see the city continue to grow, um, mm-hmm. these people are going to need a place to live. Is it difficult to to find living space in London right now?
2: I think it is incredibly difficult for young people to find a space. So, I think uh, I've read one apartment gets about 70 to 100 applications, and this is within the first hour of the ad opening. Wow. So, that's the sort of scale of issues that we have at the moment. And it's just increasing. I mean, everyone I know, they're sort of scrambling to find a space. And if they don't, they just live further away. And that sort of limits how much money they spend in the city, how much activities go on. In, in the city, so I think it has a knock-on effect as well.
0: Does it also strain resources such as uh, transportation? I assume that if if they have to live away from the city, that means that uh, the public transportation is likely to be very crowded. You know, in, in going to and coming from work
2: yes so i think during commuter commuting times it's rather crowded and we also have a lot of train strikes at the moment we have a train strike happening tomorrow as well so you can see that it's it's a tension for young people i mean we rely on public transport if we have to commute and then there are strikes and we can't get into work or study um, depending on what you do in the city so i think it's it's a lose-lose for young people at the moment
0: Akilah, a lot of of technology has made it possible for people to work remotely. Um, And, you know, I know there are some people, myself included, I I live and work in a very rural area where I can work from home and I have satellite internet and, boy, life is pretty good. But Mm -hmm. what is it that draws young people to the city? What are some of the reasons why they may need to go to cities like London if they wish to further their careers?
2: Yeah, so I think in the UK we're seeing a shift to... um, from the remote working style to back to office. I think a lot of these financial services firms, law firms, and also scientific research requires you to be in the office and learn from your peers. So I think that's, that's what we're grappling with. And given the nature of the industries that are in the city, people have to come in. So it might, remote work might work for some people, but I don't think it's going to work as much in the future, given the nature of um, the sectors that are there in London
0: and and you make a very strong case that by uh, discouraging the building that could accommodate those who would come to London uh, in, in these pursuits it, it actually has kind of a, a ripple effect in that it, it can stifle the prosperity and economic growth uh,
2: I think you know I guess in the UK, London is where everything happens. A lot of the growth is concentrated. I mean, you have Manchester as well, which is coming up at the moment, but I think most of jobs are in London and the Southeast. So hence people tend to come to London. And if you stop growth in that place, it has a sort of knock on effect for the rest of the country.
0: Okay. Are are there, are there other places that those who find, uh, you know, for instance, finding living space in, in London, You mentioned Manchester. Are there other cities to which they might take their talents and and take their ambitions? I mean, even elsewhere outside of the UK?
2: Well, I think we are seeing a lot of emigration to Australia at the moment. A lot of young people are saying, you know, London's not working for me. The UK is not working for me. I'm just going to move to Australia. You have the working holiday visa. I think Canada has also extended uh, the eligibility criteria. So I think people will just move away. (laughs) And the there'll be a loss of young talent and young workforce as well
0: so whose minds must be changed in order to uh, to bring about the necessary reforms that that will uh, will allow this problem to be addressed either through through building more buildings upward or just expanding opportunities through through building more living space mm-hmm.
2: I think in this one case, the government, the politicians have to really take a stance on this. This is one of the issues that can't be resolved just by the private sector. So we do need some input through policy making. So I think they are the ones who have the final say. To solve this
0: problem does the common person on the street feel just trapped between uh, you know the politicians and and the situation? I mean how, how would the average Londoner feel uh, does, does this feel like someone wants to come in and change my beloved city or would are they okay with the fact that you know nothing stays the same indefinitely?
2: I think that's. it depends on the demographic of the person you're asking. I guess the older people want to preserve their city and the younger people want change. So there's always a tension between the two generations.
0: That's, that's a time-honored tradition. <laughs> Again, yeah. we are visiting with Akila Jayaram. And uh, Akila. for those who want to uh, follow your work or otherwise connect with you on social media, what's the best way to go about that?
2: I think following me on Twitter is the best. So my um, Twitter handle is Akilah, A-K-H-I-L-A, underscore Jairam. So J-A-Y-A-R-A-M. That's where you can find me.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. I hope we get to talk again soon.
2: Thank you, Brian.
0: once again welcome back to moving forward with young voices as i mentioned earlier today you are meeting a number of the new young voices contributors our, our next contributor is victoria Snitzer churchill and uh, victoria first of all welcome to the program and welcome to young voices i'm happy to have you tell us a little bit about yourself
3: Well, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's really a joy to be here and be part of this new program, cohort of the program we just started a couple weeks ago. And, you know, definitely looking forward to diving right in feet first, uh, like I think they expect many of us to do here. So uh, I've worked in politics on and off in the grassroots primarily for over a decade now. I got started when I was, first, you know, back in high school, um, and I've kind of continued that throughout my collegiate years and my early young professional years, but I've also always had an interest in media, and so those two things don't necessarily always mesh together super well, because when you're doing campaigns, it's always about the candidate, Uh, but now, uh, just about a year and a half ago, I've recently transitioned back into the media realm full-time, and I'm really fortunate to work for an outlet, um, a pair of outlets, the conservative startups that are really interested in developing us. So kind of through that, I was able to apply to Young Voices and kind of see, see where this leads. So I'm excited to be on your show today.
0: Well, I thoroughly enjoyed the article that I that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, this is one you wrote for the American Conservative about how citizenship is a privilege. And, uh, you know, immigration right now is a pretty hot button topic. Of course, there's major concern over what's happening on our southern border. Uh, but one of the big concerns that I hear people express fairly often is that even at, If someone manages to make it across the border without permission, they're here illegally, but they have a child here, that child is automatically granted birthright citizenship. And this is something that you address in your article. What are some of the what are some of the takes on that birthright citizenship and and what should we be thinking about it?
3: So my take is that not that these children should not necessarily be granted birthright citizenship. They should have to earn it, just like so many people that you know did it quote unquote the right way have had to do it. Uh, I myself am I'm an immigrant. I was brought here at the age of three and got naturalized an at the age of 14. Um, so kind of my father was the one that officially went through the process, but at the end I could at that age already say yay or nay. I wanted to be a U.S. citizen. You know, America. I consider America to be my home because out of kind of my conscious years i've really known nothing else for uh living here um but you know i think it's a choice that we all make and i think that it's one that should be a conscious choice and i think you know as i kind of pointed out in the article whether you're brought here as a toddler like i was or as a child just a a few weeks away from being born i think you should be able to make that choice and that that shouldn't necessarily be your parents choice and you know apart from being an immigrant i'm also married to an immigrant my husband came to the country uh, for college and he stayed and he's also gone through his own citizenship process and just kind of seeing the the parallels but also the differences because of how i got citizenship versus how he got it and um you know my family was going to the process it took us 11 years but for my husband it only took five Uh, And so there's definitely a lot of debate, I think, about where we could fix the immigration system, but I think necessarily integrating those people from day one is not necessarily the right uh, public policy choice. And this is something that is being debated. I specifically pointed out in the article that it was Vivek Ramaswamy, one of the Republican presidential candidates that had kind of put forth this idea, but it's also being talked about among some others in the GOP field as well.
0: You know, um, I'm going to paraphrase Thomas Paine here, but uh, he mentioned in Common Sense about how things which we obtain too easily we tend to esteem rather lightly, and and so I want to bring citizenship into the realm of um, if it's if it's too easily obtained, if it's just a matter of you know tag I'm here, you know I I touched home base now now I'm a citizen. Versus as you mentioned the process, what was it eleven years for you you and your family, five years for your husband. Um, there is, a, there's a pretty significant investment for those who are willing to go through the right channels in order to obtain uh, their their citizenship.
3: Absolutely, it's an investment. You know, for a lot of people, it's financial. Some people have sponsorship through their employer, which is kind of how my family got here, uh, or are kind of able to take other classes that kind of help them along, Uh, but I think it's an investment, not only a financial one, but also an emotional one. You know, I remember being, you know, eight, nine years old and going to the consulate or the immigration office and, you know, turning in fingerprints and things like that, but I also remember being in third grade and kind of learning about American history for the first time and really realizing what the values that, uh, you know, patriotism and freedom and being able to really make whatever you want of yourself in this country, which I think is something that I've really internalized. And I knew that I would not be able to have the career, the budding career that I have today uh, if I had stayed. um, You know, my family is half Russian, half Ukrainian. So definitely interesting time to be involved in politics and the media with everything that's going on in those two countries. But, you know, even my parents asked me, what do you think you would be doing if we had stayed? And I honestly don't know the that I would give them, because being here, especially as a first-generation immigrant naturalized citizen, I think that it's really upon people like myself and my husband, who's also involved in the conservative movement as a whole, that, you know, we recognize these freedoms and we realize how fragile they are. And so we bestow it upon us to make sure that these freedoms outlast ourselves and any children that we may have in the future and really preserve these freedoms for future generations, because we know what it's like to come from places that don't have these freedoms.
0: Well... I don't want to sound like an open borders kind of person, but I do believe there's room for for people to come here. And I I think I think we should be welcoming to people who come here. But at the same time, I want those who come here to have enough skin in the game that uh, that they appreciate what this country has to offer. Now, it sounds like you are very much, you know, on the on the page of um, look, there there are places out there that are that are not uh, nearly as desirable as what a person can find here. And I assume that's what brings people here. But, again, coming back to the if, – if all I have to do is cross this invisible line, you know, out in the desert in order to, to obtain, you know, the benefits that I'm looking for, I'm not going to have the same um, – I'm, I'm not going to have the same degree of love of of country, culture, uh, that sense of patriotism as someone who actually had to learn about. It. I mean, you mentioned that it's it, it's not just a simple, yeah, you know, take this 10 question quiz and you can be an American citizen. You really have to invest some time. And in many cases, it, it's a pretty considerable financial investment for someone to, to get through all of the legal hoops necessary to become naturalized.
3: Absolutely. You know, I think that the people that want to come here and make a better lives for themselves or their families are absolutely free to do that. In the article, I talk about a kind of imaginary sliding scale of personal benefit as well as benefit to the country. And I think that that's a consideration that people have to make because maybe your initial kind of instinct for getting out of wherever your country of natural origin is, is that... Um, or sorry, national origin is is that you know maybe your situation isn't ideal and you want to make your own life better, your lives of future generations better, but you also have to realize kind of what you bring to the table in the country that you are seeking citizenship in, and you know in America you have to prove that through a million different ways while you're going through the naturalization process. There's obviously a number of different avenues, but again I think you have to have a holistic approach of you know, again, what am I getting, but what am I also giving? And, you know, there's a quote of, you know, ask not what uh, your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And I think that's something that we have to remember even today in this debate. Immigration's always been a hot button issue. It's been a hot button issue, you know, since we had Irish immigrants, since we had, you know, French immigrants coming to this country. But also it's become, I think, a much more hot button issue in the past decade or so from when I've been following the issue pretty closely. And I don't think that's going to change. And so I think it's um, kind of incumbent upon us to see where we can make uh, the process a little bit easier, a little bit more streamlined for people that want to come here and make their lives better. But we also want to make sure that the process, you know, has certain steps in place that involves kind of a proper vetting mechanism uh, to make sure that the people that stay here actually truly do want to be American, do try, do want to bring their talents to better this country, and hopefully everybody comes out better for it in the end.
0: Okay, we've got about one minute left, Victoria. I just want to ask this question. As an immigrant, I feel like it, this is a good question to ask you. Sometimes I hear people say, well, why don't people stay where they are and fix their own country? How would you respond to an observation like that?
3: That is definitely something that I hear as well. And I think, again, you have to think of the balance of, are my talents valued in my country? And for a lot of people, that answer is no. And again... If you are looking to come somewhere like the US, you have to ask yourself, what do I bring to the table? And a lot of the times places like America value those talents more than someone's home country. And so if you're kind of weighing it out and if America is the place that will value you more where you feel like You know, at the end of the day, we all have to have a job. We all have to figure out what we're going to do with our lives. And if that contribution is going to be higher valued somewhere else, I think that should be definitely something that is taken into consideration. And for a lot of people, that's why they choose to come here, because as kind of the tagline of the article reads, you know, if their home country was better, they wouldn't be looking to come here in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I love that you acknowledge, too. Look, we're not saying America is perfect, but it's just a lot better for a lot of people than where, where they originally came from. Uh, Victoria Snitzer Churchill is our guest. Uh, tell people where they can find you on social media, where they can follow you in your writing.
3: Yeah, my Twitter is at snitz underscore Churchy. So it's a combination of my maiden name and my married name there and shortened for everybody. And you can also follow us at Young Voices, find us online, find the show online. And I assume uh, our pieces will be linked in show notes and things like that. So definitely check out what I'm up to and what the rest of the cohort is up to as well.
0: Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to uh, welcome, and uh, I'm going to make sure I get your name correct here. This is uh, Elizabeth Grace Matthew. And uh, Elizabeth, you've been on the program before. Some folks are meeting you for the very first time. Uh, For their sake, take a moment. Tell us about uh, who you are and what you do.
4: Thank you so much, Brian, and thank you for having me back. Um, I'm a writer based in Philadelphia. I write regularly for The Hill Opinion. I'm an independent Women's Forum visiting fellow and a Young Voices, of course, a contributor. And I write about education, culture, politics, and religion um, for various outlets. And prior to turning to writing full-time, I spent over a decade in the academy as a writing instructor and professor
0: wonderful and you have a wonderful uh, article that we're going to be discussing it's it's actually your take on a book that i've been hearing about f- quite a bit on twitter lately and that is senator josh hawley's book manhood the masculine virtues america needs and as I told you before we went on the air, I've seen some pretty hot takes on this. Um, I think you have a little more nuance in your take, but uh, in a nutshell, what is uh, Senator Hawley, what's the case that he's trying to make in this book about uh, a return to manhood and masculine virtues?
4: Thank you. Um, yeah, there have been a lot of less than nuanced takes, I think. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's true of both the book and a lot of the reactions to it in many cases. Um, So Senator Hawley is noticing what a lot of people are noticing, which is that American men are not doing particularly well right now. They're falling behind in school. They're falling behind professionally. Too many of them are um, meeting early demises through suicide, through drug epidemics and overdoses. Um, And the professional world has turned such that some of men's traditional professions no longer pay a living wage and are no longer... Um, allow access to a middle-class life in the way that they once did. And as men go to college, even less than women, that problem is exacerbated in terms of their earning potential. Um, And their general sort of malaise, I think, is a good word to describe at least the majority of men who are not elites. Right. Obviously, if you look at boardrooms, and this is one of the sort of um, points that a lot of, folks on the the left would make who would criticize uh, Senator Hawley, if you look at boardrooms and top positions, they are still predominantly male. That's not untrue. But I think Senator Hawley is correct that for the majority of men, things are not great right now. And his argument is that this is mostly because we have neglected to inculcate and in fact, even begun to be hostile to some of the traditionally masculine virtues that he says are things like Strength and responsibility and independence and bravery, and that these virtues have been discarded in favor of overemphasis on collaboration and empathy and tolerance and niceness, right? And I think he's largely correct about that. Um, he blames the elites and the, the educational establishment, which of course is controlled by a mainstream sort of and even extreme leftist. Um, Interpretation of what children need, right? It's not sort of the modal person who votes Democratic. It's it's people who are much more extreme than that that control a lot of those cultural institutions, and he blames them. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot that is reasonable about that. Um, and he calls men to rediscover and reanimate these virtues in the face of a society that has become, at least in the educational and particularly the elite spheres, hostile to those values. I think he's right about that. I just think that there's two issues, one being that, you know, um, it's also incumbent upon men to recognize that they're part of the problem. Right. And then also that these virtues have been just as much disregarded for women as for men, and they are just as important to women as they are to men.
0: Yeah. Something you point out, and this is one of the common criticisms that I've seen in most of the reviews of Senator Hawley's book, is uh, he... he puts on kind of a, a cloak of victimhood as he tries to make his case. And, uh, you know, I know that there, there are certain quarters in which victimhood is very fashionable. In fact, that's actually, a you know, kind of an empowering thing. Look at me, I'm a victim. Now you have to do what I say. But it, it kind of detracts from, from the point that he's trying to make. Talk to me for a moment, Elizabeth, about uh, how men have contributed to the problem of uh, declining masculinity.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think the problem of sort of declining independence and responsibility, which I would kind of dispute, but that's masculinity, right? I think that that's adulthood okay. for both men and women. Um, but I think they've contributed to it in allowing themselves to be marginalized and not taking full responsibility, just as, exactly as you say, the sort of fashionable victimology has kind of come for them, right? They're sort of saying, "Well, you're not letting us, you know, run around enough in school, and then, you know, we're expected to be um, faithful husbands. We're expected to be professionally uh, successful, and I'm just not going to do that." And I think that it's entirely reasonable to criticize the circumstances in which family formation is supposed to happen. It's entirely reasonable to criticize the educational establishment. But at the end of the day, just as many people who agree with Senator Hawley, including Senator Hawley himself, would say it's incumbent upon.
0: Are you still there, Elizabeth?
4: Polygon, or certain minorities, or anything else, all of that is absolutely true, and the victimhood may be entirely relevant. However, today you have certain choices. You can drop out of school or you can stay in school. You can decide to form a family and try to be a faithful husband and and a present father, or you can decide not to do that, right? And these are choices that young men do in fact still have. And I think that um, laying the blame entirely on a society that isn't necessarily helping them do that doesn't serve them well.
0: No, I would reluctantly have to agree. Although <laughs> that means I have to shoulder some responsibility myself, you know, for for contributing to it. Um Talk to me about uh, your thoughts on efforts to blur the, the complementary roles between men and women. It seems like there's been a great emphasis on this, um, to, to the point that uh, really we're, we're actually told in some circles there is no such thing as a man or a woman. There's only gender and it's a very fluid proposition. Has that contributed at all to, to the situation that we find ourselves in or is that another part of, of another problem entirely?
4: Yeah, I think it absolutely has in certain ways. And I think that, you know, on the left, you have people that basically want to elide the differences between the average man and the average woman. And they want to not believe that there are differences in the ways that men manifest strength versus the way that women manifest strength, at least on average, right? That women tend by nature again, on average, to be more agreeable, more empathetic. Men tend to be less agreeable, more aggressive, right? These things are true. And to deny them is to deny men the necessary tools to develop into adult men, right? And I think that's been an enormous mistake on the left. One of the problems in managing our reaction to and um, contextualization of and overcoming that mistake is that on the right, instead of kind of saying what I just said, a lot of folks are saying, well, women are like this and men are like this and virtues like strength and responsibility are are otherwise known as masculinity.
0: The manly virtues. Really,
4: <laughs> right, right. And I think that's really infantilizing to women, right? What manner of mothers are going to raise such responsible men if they themselves are basically you know, emotional and, and weak and sentimental, and they can be those things because of course they're not men. I don't think that's a reasonable thing to, to, to think or a reasonable way to inculcate the types of virtues that we want in a, both our boys and our girls. And I think that the left has to recognize that boys and girls are going to manifest those virtues on average differently, and the right has to recognize that girls are not to manifest them any less than boys if you want a healthy society.
0: Interesting. Okay, so let's, uh, we've got about a minute or so left here, but uh, if, if we were giving advice to our kids, and I mean our sons and our daughters, let's uh, let's give kind of a thumbnail sketch of what's the best advice parents can be giving their kids to make sure that they don't get caught up in that, that mindset of victim victimhood.
4: That's a great question, and I, I have three of them, so I think about this a lot. I think it's mostly that, you know, you are not... Responsible for the context in which you live, but you are responsible in, for how you handle it, right? So right. your job is to to use your talents and to conquer your faults, to make yourself as useful as possible to others. And that's true for boys and it's true for girls and it will look different for the average boy and the average girl, but the core advice is no different.
0: I like it. I mean, I, I don't know if it's an outright call for a little more stoicism, but uh, I think we could all do a, be, a little bit better to, again, manage our responses more so than, I need to change the circumstances of everything around me. Um, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, but again, we're, we're talking with, uh, with Elizabeth Grace Matthew. Um, where can people find you on social media? Where can they follow you online?
4: Thank you, Brian. I'm at Elizabeth G Matt on Twitter, and my website is also linked to my Twitter account where you can find all my work. Thank you so much for having me back on.
0: Great to hear from you.